I guess everybody might. I was going to say, you said at one point, I think we're going to be very good with the coronavirus. I think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear, I hope. I'll be right eventually. <laughs> I will be right yeah. eventually. You know, I said it's going to disappear. I'll say it again. But does it's that, going to disappear. Does that and I'll you? be right. I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. You know why it doesn't disappear? Because I've been right probably more than anybody else. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is Katie. And this is Leo Wadija, which, as you all know, rhymes with quesadilla. <laughs> <laughs> It sure does. How are you doing, Leo? It still does. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been, uh, you know, it's been yet another week in 2020, or as, as I've heard some people have referred to it, is like the seventh level of Jumanji, which really... <laughs> That's a, that's a very good description. Congratulations on making it to seventh level of Jumanji. So we'll see what the, the week brings. But this week, it actually brings not a big development, I would say, but an interesting development as um, President Trump's niece, Mary Trump, released, I guess, a tell-all book about her and about her family and the president. And this is a particularly interesting book, not just because of the tell-all aspects, I think there's a lot of that, but because she happens to be a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, no less. And uh, so she goes through both diagnostic criteria and personal anecdote and interviews in order to come up with a diagnosis for, for her uncle, which is you know, it's fraught with all sorts of interesting ethical quandaries. Sorry, yes, I'm you're not back. supposed to diagnose your family members. We're not saying people don't do that all the time, but in your role. <laughs> Is she right. a practicing psychologist? Is she licensed? I don't think so. I think she okay. was licensed, but I think she's now, last I looked, she was a coach. Okay. I believe, like a, like a personal life. And funny enough, it, like she used her namesake, Trump Consultants or something and on the on the Wikipedia update that I looked. And, it, you know, the book comes, you know, there was an in, apparently a uh, non-disclosure agreement and a judge had to get involved in order to get it released. And well, here it is. It's, uh, it's coming out. But as we as we talked about it, as this, this development, we thought about that would be a great idea for, for our show because it has so many aspects that are related to what we're interested in the podcast. And one of, the, as as you mentioned, you know, you're not supposed to diagnose your own family members. But as an, another issue that has was brought up was the fact whether psychologists is ethical or appropriate for psychologists to diagnose people who have they have never interviewed. And many people have pointed out to something called the Goldwater Rule, which was essentially something that the American Psychiatric Association established after the Goldwater, uh, well, the election between LBJ and Goldwater, in which uh, a group of psychiatrists were asked to weigh in on Goldwater's uh, mental health, and it, I guess we'd say, devolved from there. Um, so we thought it would be a great uh, a great topic for today, and uh, we were very lucky to have Dr. Josh Miller, who you will introduce in just a moment, wrote an article regarding specifically that, the Goldwater Rule. Josh Miller is a professor of psychology and director of clinical training at the University of Georgia. His research lies at the intersection of personality and psychopathology with a specific focus on externalizing disorders, particularly psychopathic and narcissistic personality disorders. Josh has published over 280 articles and chapters and co-edited the Handbook of Narcissism and Narcissistic Personality Disorder and the Handbook of Antagonism. He's currently the editor-in-chief at the Journal of Research and Personality and is the incoming editor at Personality Disorders Theory, Research, and Treatment. Welcome to Dr. Josh Miller. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for being here. We're very, very excited to have you. This is an incredibly um, topical topic, and oh, uh, we're right. super anxious to talk to you about it. Yeah, because you have quite the wealth of information on it. So if I could, um, maybe we can start with what inspired you and uh, your collaborators to start working on the on the Goldwater ruled paper. Uh, well, I should be clear. That's really Scott Lilienfeld's, you know, baby. I mean, he was writing it and invited, you know, Don and I, you know, I think just some, some back channel conversations Scott and I had had about, you know, Trump and his personality pathology, what, what we presumed was his personality pathology. And, and I think, he knew, you know, Scott knew that, like himself, that Don and I don't shy away from, you know, making our opinions known. So that's really the genesis that Scott really deserves all the credit, right? Like, he just... He likes thinking the big thoughts and, and sort of taking on sort of seemingly intractable topics like this one, I think. Yeah. And to be fair, that's basically what the whole nation has been thinking about, right? This is but this has been part of part of the zeitgeist and the national conversation has been that. But one of the things that I really like about your paper is that it goes deeper into the history of it. And this is not the first time that people have called into question a president's right. mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think one of the things I was most interested, you know, in that paper was making the point that some of what I think was so problematic about the Goldwater was the sort of psychoanalytic components to what mm. they were saying, right? Like really bringing in like his parental relationship. And I don't believe that's appropriate. Like, and, and even that's where I would diverge from the Mary Trump book. I mean, I think it's fine for her as a family member to talk about it. But like, mm. what I say is like, it's obvious that he meets sort of at least criterion A symptoms for narcissistic personality disorder. Hey, Psychodrama listeners, just a quick clarification for those of you who are not mental health professionals. Criterion A for Narcissistic Personality Disorder, to which Josh refers, is from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which is published by the American Psychiatric Association. In essence, the DSM is a book that compiles all of the currently agreed upon diagnoses. Criterion A for Narcissistic Personality Disorder in the DSM is defined as, quote, a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, need for admiration, and lack of empathy. Close quote. In addition, the DSM indicates that a person is grandiose when they quote, exaggerate achievements and talents, and expect to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Okay, back to Josh. Right. That's just basing his behavior and attitudes, which we have, you know, so much data on now and matching it to that. What I'm uncomfortable with really is trying to guess the etiology of those behaviors. I mean, that's Got it. I think what I struggle even with our clinical psychology program when students are doing case conceptualizations, you know, that they have to do from the whole program is like, I just always feel like we just don't know. We don't yeah. know if why a patient truly is showing, you know, the symptomatology that they're showing. We can make yeah. guesses, but that's how I really see it is just speculation. It's it's interesting because that's all, often what I find myself thinking about is, you know, I we know that, so about between 40 and 60% of the variance is going to be accounted by genetic factors and about 40 right. and 60% of the variance is going to be accounted by non-shared environmental factors and woo, that's it. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, Trump, Mary Trump's books, I, and I haven't read it, I'm waiting for my copy to come, mm. sounds like you could interpret it and the press is interpreting in some ways in the environmental mold, which I think is consistent with how most Americans think of psychology, right? It's still in this very psychodynamic right. perspective that, oh, like the parents were, you know, um, you know, negligent, abusive, maybe. Um, but it ignores like, well, she's also saying the dad was a sociopath. And so mm -hmm. clearly that's a strong argument also for potentially a genetic argument or, or the combination of the two, which, you know, we all know is 
most likely the case. I'm wondering, I think that's a great point about not speculating about etiology as psychologists. Uh, you know, like you said, it's different if it's a family member who even then would kind of be speculating. So it sounds like in the paper, what you really argue is the way that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is set up now for making diagnoses, especially with narcissistic personality disorder, is based on self, often when you're directly examining people, their self-report of their right. behaviors, right? Exactly. And, and And so what I thought was interesting is that you're saying we have public behaviors, maybe more information certainly more information than you would have for a lot of patients just meeting in one or two sessions, right? I, I mean, I think yes, yes. And more information potentially than uh, a therapist might have doing, you know, two or three months of CBT with a patient even, I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been a public figure his entire life. I mean, I mean, I grew up in New York. I mean, like, I mean, I've known of him since my adolescence, right? Like, that's 30 years alone of a, of a man. And now, you know, let alone since he was an early adopter of Twitter, you know, I mean, we have just an incredible amount of data on this man, way more than we would ever get in an unstructured interview in a psychiatric setting, I believe. What are the diagnostic criteria that you feel are met when it comes to Trump? And what are some of the observations that map onto those criteria that stand out to you? Oh, boy. I mean, I, I mean, I, th- <laughs> you know, I, I can't say that, like, I've gone through and counted everyone, but like, so grandiose sense of self-importance, right? Exaggerating achievements and talents. I mean, he describes himself as one of the richest men in the world, one of the best leaders, smartest. Uh, one of the smartest businessmen, despite, you know, right, like he, that he has 95% approval in the Republican Party. I don't think that's ever been supported by polling. Uh, and then his denigration of others, right? And that's a really important part of narcissism, too, is not just the sort of the, the puffing up of oneself. It's also the, the denigration of rivals, right? Like Mitra Box model explicitly has rivalry as one major component that one way to you can make yourself seem better by you know, bragging but but you can also simultaneously make other yourself seem better by denigrating others and right those those are two things he does very well um preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success power brilliance uh, again i think we see again in, in his many tweets his discussions of you know being the best most successful president since lincoln right or that he's never or, or even his grievance, right? That he's never been, no right. one's been treated as badly as he has. Forgetting that, what, like Reagan was nearly killed. Uh, Kennedy was killed, right? Like many presidents have been treated far worse than, you know, sort of the the shots he has taken. Uh, believing you're spe- special and unique can only be uh, understood by or associated with other special high status uh, people requiring excessive admiration, uh, having a sense of entitlement. I mean, I think we see this with a mask, you know, in some degree, like he doesn't believe he should have to sort of do these basic things. I mean, some of this is his vanity, too, which is a common part of narcissism. But he just doesn't believe that the rules should apply to him, whether it's you know releasing his taxes that all presidential candidates have done for, you know, I don't know, 40 or 50 decades, uh, 40 or 50 years, um, interpersonally exploitative, certainly you know, we know that takes advantage of others, you know, uses bankruptcy as a way to get out of owing money, uh, lacking empathy. I, I mean, I think we see all that in his criticism, whether it's Fauci criticizing the Gold Star families, criticizing McCain and, and his legacy when the you know wife and children were still actively grieving his death. I mean, there's the lacking empathy is, 
I mean, I think the coronavirus has shown that so spectacularly, as is his reaction to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Can't, can't take himself out of the equation in terms of seeing it as a denigration of him rather than a need to address centuries of oppression. Uh, envious of others, believes others are envious of him. I, I often think of Narsim in these sort of grandiose versus vulnerable piece, but he's so pathological. I think he does really blend them both. And and so I do think, you know, he believes others are envious, but you see his intense envy, I think, of people like President Obama, right? I mean, just his need to try to diminish his star. Uh, I mean, I, I think nothing gets under his or gets his goat sort of um, as the love of, you know, our first black president uh, does and him winning Nobel Peace Prize and being beloved by half the country. And so we actually have, a, we introduced a, a good um, a good couple of terms and we have a fair amount of psychologists that follow us. But for those who are, are not psychologists, maybe you can talk a little bit about the vulnerable and grandiose narcissism constructs and how they sure. differ and how, yeah. uh, or they meet because the continuum between, between them. Right. I mean, I think of them as um, sort of mostly separable dimensions, you know, that are maybe correlated about 0.2 or 0.3. There are other models that, that think of them as sort of um, different states within the same individual. So I would say like Aaron mm -hmm. Pincus and Aiden Wright mm -hmm. and that group sort of think of them as states that people fluctuate. And in, in some ways, I think Trump may fit that more. And that you know, sort of the, the true sort of core of like pathological narcissism that he has a lot of both. But I think a lot of the data suggests that oftentimes narcissistic people are more one than the other. So you're like primarily grandiose or primarily vulnerable. And grandiose is really the more prototypical, right? That's like the, the symptoms I just described of like DSM narcissistic personality disorder are mostly grandiose in nature by far, right? Like the only bits of um, vulnerability are, the, are like where you see things like is envious of others as well as believes others are envious of he or she. So I think when most people think of Narsim, we're thinking of the grandiose one, right? Like high self-esteem, at least they would report high self-esteem, right, right. assertive leadership, like the, the kinds of things we would see in politicians. Um, I think we see bragging, in, speaking of yeah, themselves. Yeah. We're going to see it in celebrities and, you know, professional athletes and corporations. Vulnerable, um, you know, I struggle with whether, you know, people have often asked me, is it even narcissism? I struggle mm. with that mo more if, if alone is that really narcissism because, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it, you know, some of our work shows it's mostly just intense negative affectivity. And that's why, in fact, it, mm. its nomological network looks a lot like borderline personality disorder and any, and any other sort of syndrome in which intense negative emotions and feelings are involved, shame, guilt, uh, embarrassment, anxiety. Um, you know, what I think does make it narcissistic is the sort of the intense self-absorption and self-focus mm -hmm. that, and I think we can see this in depression too, right? When, when it, I always say to my undergrad class, even like how hard it is to do therapy when you're depressed. And I, I tell them a story of like when I was a, uh, a graduate student as an early therapist and, uh, I was seeing an inpatient young man like I was, and I had just broken up with my first love like two days mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And I had to fight so intensely when he was talking about the breakup that led to his inpatient hospitalization. I had to fight so hard of saying kind of me too and wanting to share my own struggle. <laughs> you know, it was like I was depressed and, and I was stretched thin and being able to relate as fully to him and not make it about me because I mm. needed help, you know. Um, and so I think with vulnerable narcissism, that's what you're seeing more is just the intense dysphoria making it so hard to not be my sort of myopic. Do you see 
some of the entitlement with vulnerable narcissism to yeah, that's, that's kind of, kind of the reassurance. You, yes, you, you do. And exploitiveness, yeah. Definitely. I, I think in general, like if you think from a five-factor model perspective, you know, you, you don't see the same degree necessarily always of entitlement or ex- certainly of exploitiveness. I'd say it's much more strongly associated with the, the grandiose dimension. But I think the um, entitlement is there, the self-absorption. And really a lot of what you see in terms of vulnerable narcissism is the intense distrust, the, this sort of cynical view of others. And again, it makes me think of the you know, sort of depressive attributions, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not just the self is bad, but others, right? Others won't be there for me. They won't um, see how much I'm in need, right? And, and also failing to, again, then acknowledge that, you know, other people in our lives or strangers have their own shit they're dealing with, mm-hmm. right? The example I often give, you know, I was saying to the CBC reporter, like I've put up Donald Trump as a my example of grandiose narcissism for right. 15 years. But the one I do for vulnerable is um, Costanza from Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, I actually was saying Nixon. Uh, yeah, Nixon does and I'll, and I'll give my rationale a little after your, after your reaction. Right, no, and he does, you're right. Like in terms of the profile from our paper with Ashley Watts led, um, he is, I think, the you know the highest and vulnerable. Um, I you know I guess in some ways I have to admit that you know I was a child during Nixon, so I don't mm-hmm. know his personal characteristics as much. In some ways, I I guess I like Costanza because he just oozed that neediness, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that I'm not getting what I deserve. And Nixon may well have too, but you know, sort of not being a presidential historian like Leo, maybe you have a better sense of what you would see as fits that for him. Yeah, you know, so what I could, the, the conceptualizations of, of vulnerable versus grandiose that kind of resonate with me and, and a little bit of Aaron Pincus's work, but it's um, the differentiation is the grandiose that tends to be more extroverted, that's more positive emotionality, right. but that includes extroversion versus the uh, vulnerable who tends to be more introverted, but they tend to have this same level of entitlement and exploitativeness. And that model kind of made a lot of sense to me and in my head is easy to wrap around. And like the fictional characters, the one that I always think about is from The Simpsons is a comic book guy. Oh my God, that is, <laughs> my, my collaborator Keith Campbell has, I mean, he must have said that to me 50 times. <laughs> it's in, it's in totally him. Oh, that it's is like, so funny uh, you said that. I, idiots, but meanwhile, he's just like in the basement and just filled with self-doubt. And Oh yes, he's got his, his like balding and his ponytail. <laughs> no, I think that's a, I think that's a spectacular example. I have been reluctant to use it just because I think The Simpsons like tends to be like younger men. I, um, I, I haven't been as sure if everyone would know that character to the degree that you know, that's more. fair. I am dating myself a little bit. Well, no, I, I don't, I don't great. know that character, so I appreciate you using different ones, but <laughs> I will have to check that character out a little bit more because it sounds like there's consensus against per, uh, between personality researchers. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, for Nixon, I think I think it's in that grandiose narcissistic vulnerable spectrum. I think of. Um, uh, the, so clearly, like Trump, the, from what I know, is, is that he not only does he enjoy attention, but he just craves it and needs it in a just pathological need, as opposed to Nixon, who I don't think really enjoyed people. He enjoyed power, perhaps, and he enjoyed being uh, in charge of others, but he just didn't crave or enjoy or really like the limelight very much. And so that's kind of where those are my anchors, I guess, when it comes to political life and real life examples. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, when, when Keith Campbell and I first, the first paper we did, I mean, you know, started when I first got to UGA, you know, and, and we compared sort of the measure that social personality people were using, which I had never heard of. I didn't really come out of my postdoc really doing narcissism stuff at all. I was much more <laughs> psychopathy right. and, and just DSM personality. 
disorders in general. But it, I mean, it made sense. I mean, narcissism, who isn't interested in that, right? A, it's just interesting. And yeah. then um, it just seemed like a good place for us to collaborate. So we compared it then to like, you know, the PDQ and PD and really the, the just the crossing pa- pattern of on FFM of neuroticism and extroversion, right? Like that both were low on agreeableness, but like just... Right. Polar opposite, like literally the exact, almost exact same effect size in terms of strength, but valence being the exact opposite where the, you know, the grandiose is, you know, low neuroticism, high extroversion and the vulnerable being high neuroticism, low extroversion. I just thought was sort of fascinating. And I think, you know, 15 years in, it's really shown a very helpful way of, you know, sort of delineating between those two dimensions. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess um, you brought up psychopathy. And in our podcast, we've talked about when we, when we did a Tiger King episode, we really oh, delved into the, in the, in, into the cluster B oh, uh, man, and how they was... kind of mesh into each other. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so de- I mean, so descriptive of I mean, I have lots of problems with the whole dark triad literature, but uh, mm. and to the extent that you can separate them. But man, that thing was an amazing example of, you know, the Machiavellian the versus yes. the more narcissistic versus the more pure psychopathic. I mean, it was a incredible yeah i think for a personality seminar it's like mandated watching really yeah totally and so we talked a little bit about um you, you mentioned that you're also a psychopathy researcher and the 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 part that i'm it, like in my own dissertation what i worked as like you know is there a place that we can we can find a place where where nature uh, you know carving nature it's joints yeah. i guess and where does grandiose narcissism break away from vulnerable and when does psychopathy break from vault for, from uh, grandiose narcissism if we conceive these things lying in a continuum yeah and so i am curious as to your thoughts regarding um the precedence and the goldwater rule perhaps regarding psychopathy narcissism or is it more okay to give one side diagnosis versus the other or do you have any any qualms one way or the other yeah i mean I think lots of people have tried i mean to the extent like i mean alan france is a good example right the head of dsm4 he does not believe right. that trump is has NPD, but he says he's <laughs> one of the most narcissistic people in, in humankind. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, for two reasons, one, I mean, and I disagree with him and maybe we'll talk about this is, you know, he believes it's very stigmatizing to people with mental illness. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, a more compelling issue is, does he have the impairment and or mm-hmm. distress that you need for a diagnosis? Um, mm-hmm. and we can get back to that in a second. So, I mean, I, I guess to the extent that you could say he's just narcissistic, right? You then, you know, maybe are you dodging the gold water? Maybe in the letter of the law, but I don't know if that's really um, entirely dodging the, the 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 underlying sort of values of that. So I could also say if I say he's psychopathic, well, psychopathy is not really official diagnosis of DSM. Right. So maybe I'm I'm dodging that. But again, to me, that's uh, uh, that's a little sketchy. And I, I think I guess I have just decided that I'm willing you know to put my opinions out there in a slightly less polished way because you know even though i think there are concerns about diagnosing people that we've never met i've never met or interviewed donald trump obviously um uh, but i think nor will he be interested in being interviewed by you after no, totally. this or any <laughs> of the press this. that you've but done I, right but i just <laughs> i think that he'll stop by psychodrama next week we'll see yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for a rebuttal holy cow that would make your podcast right um <laughs> I mean, I think um, think there are higher level sort of moral ethical standards and, you know, the duty to warn, you know, at this point, it's a little late, but is why I even was willing to speak up some, you know, in 2016, I, 
you know, spoke to several journalists, you know, uh, I was a little bit more measured then. I think it wasn't as clear that he's, it was going to be as bad as it has been. I mean, I thought it was going to be bad, but it's, it's even worse. Um, and I guess I've just gotten somewhat desensitized. Uh, it's not to say I say any of these things, um, you know, glibly or, or without concern ethically or for my own well being in terms of, you know, people, you know, um, doing untoward behaviors. But I also think, it makes us look a little bit like ostriches to mm. bury our head in the sand and pretend. I mean, I, I said this on Twitter the other day. Like, let's not pretend I have some great diagnostic skill in mm. saying he he looks like he has NPD or psychopathy. I mean, literally a first year grad student or undergrad could could match. This is not a difficult differential diagnosis, in my opinion. And it's interesting you say that because I do think and I if I'm remembering correctly, there's research suggesting people are pretty good lay people with diagnosing narcissism, right? I certainly, and as a therapist, have people come in and they'll identify people who seem to have narcissistic characteristics. Now I'm not interviewing them as well, but it reminded me that, like you said, that there there are some things because it is maybe such open and public behavior that you don't need a lot of training to pick up. Right. I mean, one of the things I, when, when Scott and Don and I were writing that paper and in a call, I was saying is like, well, if you just imagine you interviewed Trump, what could he say in an interview that would make you, uh, that would dissuade you from thinking that narcissistic personality disorder was at least a really critical part of your, your diagnostic sort of package, right? Like, like mm-hmm. if he said, no, I'm just putting this on for a show, would that convince you? If he, if he talked about sort of difficult childhood events, would that convince you? That's not supposed to weigh, right? Again, we don't weigh ideology really uh, like, our, you know, our, our thanks to Spitzer, right? right? Our, our, we have a sort of phenomenological sort of diagnostic approach, right? We're not weighing because our field isn't really there where ideology tells us that much about what, you know, what a disorder is or isn't. So I, that, that's what, like, I don't understand how, what an interview could even tell us at this point in time that would dissuade us from our opinions that have been gleaned from talks, tweets, behaviors in all kinds of different functional domains. That's a great point. And actually, it makes me think about what it, what an interview might be like. I mean, some people find Trump to be very charismatic. Um, is that something that you usually see with narcissistic personality disorder? Um, well, you see it with grandiose narcissism for sure. Yes, absolutely. That, you know, that extroversion part, right? Like we know people like extroverts, right? They can, they can judge someone's extroversion relatively accurately from like still pictures and from thin slices, you know, 30 or 60 second clips. So I think, and like that, right? We like people that seem confident that, um, you know, sort of exude a, like an interpersonal charm. And I, Many people have written that even people who have, you know, like sort of journalists, I don't think typically aligned with him have written about, um, you know, finding, you know, one-on-one with him, at least in, during his campaign being charming. I remember Howard Feynman, you know, a famous journalist talked about his wife meeting him backstage at something they were at and going in with a very negative opinion of Trump and leaving like really charmed by him mm-hmm. and aware, of, kind of aware of it though, you know, that when the light of a narcissist shines on you, if it's more this grandiose version that it could feel really 
special at first. Actually, this is exactly what I've heard people describe Bill Clinton as. Mm -hmm. as uh -huh. well. So, you know, if you put, it, you put it on the other side of that, you know, because I may, I may oh. disagree with uh, Trump's policies and stuff like that. But I've described basically that, that, that I've heard many times the description about Clinton, which is that there's something about the dude that he just kind of walks into the room. He just manages to make you feel like the most important person in the room. 100%. And oh, you I think, just want to like really like him. I think Clinton is probably even better in that in that domain than Trump, right? I mean, he's a guy that would know your name. Like Trump wouldn't know your name, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, or if he met you and then met you again five minutes later, he would reintroduce himself, right? But but Clinton, I think, was so interpersonally skilled in that kind of superficial charm mm. and exuding warmth and engagement. Now, I agree with you 100% in those sort of, you know, which, which by themselves are really, you know, great um, aspects of one's personality to have, both for like, you know, success in friendships, romance, all kinds of like work, but but if they were by themselves, I mean, they're just a are healthy, adaptive sort of component of personality, right? Like I, um, I always joke like you know, it's it overlaps a lot with the fearless dominance, boldness part of psychopathy, and I always joke like we all should be more bold or fearlessly <laughs> dominant. I mean, it's mostly prototypical health when it's you know considered alone. It's only when you bring in the antagonism or impulse control problems that it's if it's paired with that, it's problematic. But without that, boy, I mean, what a what a pathway to success. Palhus's work early 2000s where they brought um, you know undergrads in for like a series of like group activities for like six to eight weeks and and what right. what he found is I think you know what we even found with the presidents too is like people like narcissistic people at first right you yeah. they seem because in part you think it's high self-esteem right you think they're confident but that they you may also think they'll make room for you and it's not till repeated sort of engagement with the person you realize oh there is no room for me right like i that person is going to suck all the oxygen out of this group out of this effort and, and there's none left for me right it's, so it's um that that's what i think is so different about self-esteem and narcissism is that narcissism is so zero sum like there can only be one leader. There can only be one person who's best. Whereas I think high self-esteem people can be like, I'm great and so are you. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. there, there is room for a multitude of people to be successful, to be likable. So yeah, and I so I think even like in the in the uh, president's paper, we saw that the more grandiose narcissistic individuals, you know, the, the markers of success were mostly in the beginning, right? They were, but but that you saw that cost over time. They were less likely to be elected. Uh, re-elected, right? Like, so they, they do well initially. And then over the course of four years, I think it's harder for relatively narcissistic politicians or people to ultimately sort of hide or sublimate those basic tendencies. That's really interesting, because I think it gets at what you were saying before about the distress and impairment criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and whether you could consider someone who has become president, I mean, I think we could point to some areas of distress, maybe when people, um, when he's denigrating people, I don't know if that's relevant to his distress. We could talk about some impairment as to what we perceive on the job, but can someone who's president be considered distressed and impaired? Well, distressed, yes, but impaired. Right. I I don't think there's great evidence for intense distress. I mean, I think the distress mm -hmm. is anger based, right? It's all, it's mm -hmm. still externalized. I don't know. I think it depends how you think about impairment, right? I mean, he's been married, what, three or four times, an ex-wife accusing him of rape, his mm -hmm. own children. I mean, at least one child seems 
largely um, uninvolved with him. Um, you know, one child, even you know, Don Jr. I think went at least a year without any uh, relationship with him after sort of the, the divorce. Uh, uh, I think he reports and other people report that he has almost no meaningful friendships in his life. And he, there was even reporting. You know, while he was present where he said, oh, so-and-so and I are good friends. And these journalists would talk to people and they'd be like, I can't believe he would say we're friends. <laughs> so, I mean, I think in terms of the relational domain, it's pretty clear there's impairments. He's now been impeached. I think there are questions like, is his business when he gets out of the president, is it actually going to be as good as it was pre-president? So again, w- if he wasn't narcissistic, would he have been better off not actually running for president, just throwing throwing shit at the Democrats from afar like he mm-hmm. did with Obama? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's possible that his his brand is intensely diminished as a result that who's going to stay at Trump hotels? Well, maybe his base, but his base tends to be oftentimes not the people have the money to play golf or join Mar-a-Lago. So I don't know. And then I think if you think about impairment in, in more personological ways, like in the DSM alternative model personality disorder, so it's less, it's less like concrete. And in that some ways I don't like it because of that. But, you know, about like um, your ability to form lasting relationships that are mutually reciprocal. Um, your ability to have a strong sense of who you are and your worth sort of without needing a lot of external, you know, so like there's the self-direction, there's the identity domain, there's the empathy domain. Like, I think if you read through those, it'd be hard not to think that he would be rated by most knowledgeable raters as being impaired in that what's criterion A of the alternative model. I, I appreciate walking through the diagnostics. I have to say that Reading that paper when it came out, your paper with Scott and with, I don't know Scott, so I probably shouldn't call him my first name basis. Oh, he's very, yeah, he'd be fine. <laughs> okay, I did, very I have affable. met him twice, so. I, <laughs> yeah, although, I have shaken hands with him a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're on first name basis, but that paper actually, uh, I did find compelling and it did change my mind in how I was initially thinking about things. And the second part that we kind of talked about briefly, but I'd love to hear more about. So what are psychologists ethical duty to warn and how does that, how is that at play here? I mean, it's a great question. I don't know that I have broad thoughts that I've thought out, you know, that I've thought like for the field rather than just my own sense that this falls in my research expertise. Like, like hopefully like no politician will ever fall, at least no president will ever again fall in my research expertise so strongly. And I just felt that like, if I wasn't willing as a full professor and, and um, you know, with my own white privilege even, you know, like mm, mm, if I wasn't willing fair. to speak to it, then like, I don't know. I just thought, thought in my own morals, like I, like I, I really- Like I an ethical be, imperative. Yeah, I have to, I want to be really mm. clear. This is like, my speaking out is based much more on my own moral code than APA's code. Like I'm not even a member of APA. I'm really speaking. And that's obviously I am licensed. I have to work via that code, but I'm just saying I, I felt that this superseded the specifics of that. And I think, but I think it could fit in there, right? Like, you know, in the general principles of justice and things like that, right? I mean, this is a man who, you know, 130,000 people have died, potentially some some decent percentage needlessly out of what I perceive as a dereliction of duty and a failure of empathy, an unwillingness to admit they were wrong, that that ties into, again, these same traits that I feel like I'm warning about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, the impulse control problems. The reason that I actually think psychopathy is a better fit than narcissism is that, you know, in, in most times in narcissism, uh, impulse control is relatively intact. And mm-hmm. I think we see a president with intense emotional emotional and impulse control difficulties. So 
I, I'm not interested. Like I, I don't in like diagnosing like every president and I have take medicine for my worry. I, um, I have been in therapy before. I have no problem with a president with, mm. you know, with many sort of, I, human, I don't think, I don't think depression or anxiety would rule out a man or woman to be president. With Trump, like you said, there's, um, it's there are other people probably with narcissistic traits who have been in positions of leadership, but the impulse control and other things that kind of um, filter into your opinion. I think that that's true. And the severity, right? Like, mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. Like, like, it, I mean, one of the items on the narcissistic personality inventory, like one, the dichotomous one, like one of the two choices, the, the narcissist, like, is something like the world would be a better place if I was the leader or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I always laugh, like, I would never say yes. The idea of being the leader <laughs> of, the, of the world is terrifying. Like, who would... Who would think yes i don't I know what are the contingencies me. i don't know you gotta you, you know gotta, you gotta, i was yeah. not making a binary faculty choice, senate but, president yeah. once and i think that was enough of leadership for me oh so. I, I know i think it, it's terrifying to think about being a department chair yeah. um, i mean i think like any president right like every president right like obama was responsible for like what hundreds of deaths like mm-hmm. it is such a important like scary job. So I do think like you have to have supreme confidence in yourself and probably right. err on the side of some narcissism. So I totally agree. This is a severity issue for me, right? Like, yes, you could say that almost any president is going to be probably above the norm in a population, I believe, right? I think in part because it's hard to think of yourself as doing that job, but also you like, you do like being a successful politician does require a fair bit of those extroverted like right. people skills, a bit of manipulation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Getting people to see you as a leader, like leader emergence, right? Like that in a group, in an unformed group, you like you know narcissists are good at emerging as leaders. There's no evidence that they're particularly good leaders, but just that they reliably emerge as leaders. So uh, yeah, so I, I think it's a severity issue. And then when you bring in the disinhibition, that's terrifying again, right? That like, you know, somebody with relatively unchecked power, especially when he has the Senate backing and, and for some time had the House, like there are almost no breaks. Mm-hmm. And so when the when the person's personality, there are no breaks, right? Because of the lack of impulse control. And then you bring in the lack of constraint from an interpersonal one of like, if you don't care about others yeah. and don't see them as autonomous individuals, that deserve your respect and your care and your caution about like that's also a lack of inhibition there in an interpersonal domain so like in that way i find him frighteningly sort of uh, without anchoring so the severity especially when it comes to caring about other people and how that's been carried out to harm people and that's where the duty to warn comes in right that this person is capable of harm because of how they are and their and their past behaviors. Well, absolutely. I mean, just like I mean, I have two kids that deciding about school or not, and I mean, I mean, the dereliction of duty compared to you know most other developed countries, like where the U.S. is today versus where we could have been if he had worn a mask right away, if things had been shut down more quickly, if he acknowledged right. it wasn't going to go away in hot weather or by injecting bleach or <laughs> You know, all these nonsensical sort of, it was just fantastical, right? I, I mean, I almost thought it was magical thinking, just mm-hmm. like this will just go away, right? You know, without doing anything. And here we are months and months in and we are no better. In fact, we've wasted in some way the public goodwill um, and self-control the public had to engage in what were very difficult sort of delay of gratification behaviors and probably are about to be faced with another many months of re-engaging in those behaviors. So I, I yeah, I think that, sort of lack of uh, attention to detail, lack 
of you know, willingness to read all the facts, lack of willingness to consider that experts actually have more you know, knowledge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I, again, I view it as sort of the death of expertise, the idea that, that he has as much knowledge about any of these facts as whether it's military actions in the Middle East, it's about how we engage with NATO and our allies, whether it's medical things like coronavirus, it's yeah. like, it's so threatening to him to have someone with more expertise that he has to immediately denigrate them or remove them, right? We've, which we see with Fauci. Like, you know, he, he's effectively removed him from the public square as much as he can. Right. It's interesting. It's, it, to me, it makes me think a lot about and kind of we, because of the, of the nature of the papers that you guys have written. Um, I did keep going back and forth. I'm like, this would be an in, I, would, I wish I would be reading about this in the book, in the history books rather than kind of living through it because it's a, it's a little it's <laughs> right. like a crazy roller coaster. But it's almost like uh, and I actually I think you, you in the CBC interview, you said, you know, if you to, somebody told me to put, put a composite for, of, of narcissism and I started using real life examples from Trump. They would say this is just entirely too outlandish. It speaks to the severity, I guess, of the presentation. But I do wonder about how much how much of these traits are just kind of unavoidable in politics. And we kind of alluded to it. But I, one of the things that I really like in the in the articles, and we will post them, is that you guys um, list you make a, a list of presidential rankings on the three narcissism indices. And so you can see it, you know, throughout different throughout history, uh, people that you may you know whether you agree or disagree with them. So you have like LBJ who and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who were very influential in American history, kind of having kind of straddling that narcissism and grandiose narcissism and, and NPD. And I, I just wonder how much we and I think you actually alluded to this as well, is that we, we the presidents are becoming perhaps more grandiose. There's something about the American election system that just kind of further encourages these traits. And maybe our our culture is becoming as yeah, a society, a media society. It further just kind of the, the interaction between environment and genetics. Basically, we're further encouraging these traits, and and the, he may just be the first iteration of uh, more things to come because we kind of keep rewarding uh, uh-huh. these kind of traits in, in politics. I'm not sure. Well, I think you know in the in the in the, um, the Watts paper, we were able to show the increases due you know, almost entirely just to extroversion, and I think that does again make sense, right? Like how you convey yourself on TV, on Twitter, on Facebook, right? It, it is so right. different than 30 years ago and obviously incredibly different than 150 years ago, right? Um, and, and I think now it is much harder to be a more introverted, you know, successful politician. It's not that it's impossible. I don't think Mitch McConnell is like an incredibly extroverted person. Yeah, he wields tremendous power within the Republican Party. But I do think it's really hard, right? And this is what Nixon struggled with even some too, that he did not have those extroverted like people skills as well. And he suffered in debates based on that to some degree. Um, so I, I sort of view it more that way. But I also, I agree that social media like is going to pull for people who are willing to see it for what it's worth, that like, you know, bringing, you know, heat, but not necessarily light, right? Like that, that the Palins or Ted Cruz, I mean, there's just a lot of politicians that realize that it's easy to kind of troll the public mm-hmm. to get attention and mm-hmm. and to boost those who like them and to enrage those who don't, which only furthers how much their base likes them, right? I mean, so it's not just, I like what you're doing and I like that you're pissing off the people I don't like. So I think it may, you know, it's, it's possible in that way. Obama was a very interpersonally skilled person, but 
I like I wouldn't rate him as off the chart in extroversion, right? Like I think he mm. has excellent people skills and clearly is a high self-esteem, really um, strong sense of confidence and self-efficacy, I think. But like, I don't think he was necessarily quite like Clinton or Trump in that, like just loving the attention, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just feeding off the energy of a room. I'm not sure, but he seems lower on that. So that makes me think that it is possible that, that we will still sometimes have presidents that are not quite to that degree. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very hopeful, I like it. That's a very hopeful <laughs> I do think like, I think it's going to be very hard, to, you know, impossible to imagine very neutral or introverted presidents, though. I mean, I just think the job now, I mean, just even, right, the campaign goes on for two years. The the yeah. the exhaustion one must have to fight against, right? Especially, like, when many of these candidates are in their 70s, like, the, yeah. that, like, every day you're going to get up and shake 500 hands and pretend that you're interested in every conversation, mm-hmm. or, in fact, maybe be so people-oriented that you actually are able to really connect in those micro interactions. So can I go yeah. back to one other thing? Oh like, yeah, of course. I think it's really important to just to chat about for a second is like this distress impairment um, issue. And and one of the things, sure. yeah, I don't know that we in the sort of psychology and psychiatry grapple enough with um, is the extent to which like, you know, race and money and education can also moderate the effects yeah, of. Yeah. I'm glad you're talking about impairments. that. Impairments. Yeah. Right. So so maybe he's not as impaired as we would expect from someone with, that seems to meet these symptoms. But think about how much money and prote- and the protection that brought, like whether it's right. threatening thousands of lawsuits against anyone that would speak out against him, threatening lawsuits about like when people would say he wasn't a billionaire, you know, that he was just a millionaire, right? That he's had all these bankruptcies, but is able to bounce back. You know, the fact that in part, again, because of this network, because of the family money, right? He had a lot of failures early on, but he was so propped up by his father. And even just as a white man, right? Again, it's a lot of the things he did. I mean, right? I, I, if Obama had done, you know, one-tenth of these, like the, like the failure to react to coronavirus, right. just imagine if Obama had found out that Russians were paying a bounty for American right. soldiers and he didn't speak on it for 20 days, like no public statements. I mean, people would have lost their mind. And yet here we have a white president, male president doing that. And the party that's sort of putatively of, you know, patriotism and military support and strong support for our soldiers has really not spoken out and taken him to task. So that that's where I think the privilege has protected him immensely. And, mm-hmm. and thus we, and I don't know that our diagnostic systems are as not currently constituted yeah. to take that into account. Yeah, it seems, I am so glad you brought that point out mm-hmm. because it, it, it's, it's, it's one, it's related to a topic that I'm, or a, a construct I'm interested in is bandied about a lot is the concept, construct of successful psychopathy. And I've gone back and forth on it in between, you know, is there, you know, the grandiose narcissists are maybe just, you know, people call them successful psychopaths. Yeah. And I think I've come around almost full circle to think, yeah, there might be such a thing to coming around like there aren't successful psychopaths. There are lucky psych- psychopaths. Uh-huh. And then if we just kind of look at, you know, in a very kind of just the randomness of events, the people who kind of happen to have those traits and in addition, just get lucky break after lucky break after lucky break through either circumstance or, you know, their life, like they happen to be rich, born, born right. richer or whatever. And then they just get away with the things that other stuff that otherwise we wouldn't. And when I look at the biographies of other people who arguably have psychopathic traits and they engage in malfeasance of some sort or another, I always keep just keep finding times in which they just got away with it. Like Bernie Madoff is the one that jumps up to mind is that he was not a particular 
brilliant mastermind is that he was likable and people just kept cutting him breaks we had breaks and even though a lot of people were sending red alarms from flares about it there was a system around that said no we don't want to st- stop this party and then he got away right. with it for that long so that's that's kind of that reminded me of that a little bit yeah and i mean i guess my only po- like i agree that there's a sort of just true luck or like sort of randomness but i think it's really important mm-hmm. to highlight you know a lot of it's 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 structural luck right it's built oh, sure. in, right it's built into the system again that like such that white males in particular with these traits are likely to do better than white women. And those people are likely to do better than, you know, people of color right. with these traits. Um, a- absolutely. Um, I, I mean, can you imagine that we would elect a, a person of color as president who had had five or six bankruptcies and, and multiple right. marriages, right? right? Like, right. I mean, it would have brought up so many racist tropes. Right. At yeah. 100%. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I just go back. I, I do actually believe mostly, like, to your point, is that, like, successful psychopathy is often really probably just mostly grandiose narcissism, is that they're mm-hmm. a little bit more successful, probably because their impulse control is a little bit better, so they're not getting in the same mm-hmm. level of control of difficulty. They probably have some. And then, like you said, and then structural things where if they're white, they get out of jail versus if they were black and they'd get caught into the, the – uh, incarceration cycle right mm-hmm. things like that i'm yeah. so glad you brought that up because i i do think that that can be an area in psychology that is missed often those structural components that it's not as clear as just some of the behavioral criteria of like getting arrested or things you think is of clear impairment you're right if trump has paid off people to not talk about things that he did a lot of people can't do that and suffer greater consequences. And that doesn't mean um, less pathology, right? That at least to an individual, it, it does speak more to the structure. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I really like is that you you take a methodical approach. It's very, because uh, you have the opportunity to do that, but you argument, counter-argument, argument, counter-argument. And, and I, I go back and forth a little bit. I, I can see the argument. The one thing that I keep going, uh, I keep maybe getting, it's not stuck per se, but I would say, that the interpretation that I would have would be currently because I just I happen to disagree vehemently with the policies and actions of this administration. It's easier for me to be like, yes, no, definitely duty to warn. We should do this. Right. And I, I do wonder, you know, when because if once that uh, once we let you know, that open that Pandora box, then what it, what will it be like whenever the shoe is on the other foot? Uh, yeah. And they happen to be, you know, it happens to be, a, you know, like Biden or whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, well, great. Guess what? Now we're really because I I think that's my concern is that now they're, they're going to really going to start and they're already kind of hinting at that they're going to start to do uh, neuropsychological testing kind of like right. they did with Clinton basically right no that's a great that's a great point I mean clearly I, you know uh, I, I have to own my biases that like you know um, I'm a Democrat voter uh, I'd like to obviously think that if a Democratic politician showed these signs I would not support them and. And would speak out similarly to that, but no, I, your point's well taken for sure. Is that uh, now? I guess the problem is like, how could, like, like how could one be unbiased in some ways? If I'm saying right. that this person has these, you know, traits of entitlement, exploitativeness, lack of empathy for people in general, and then particularly people who've already been beaten down, often case historically in society, 
what would it say about me if I was able to be totally unbiased, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's, that's hard for, you know, people that go into this profession, right? Is that we tend to be, you know, empathic towards others. It's what drives us, whether it's a research or clinical career to this stuff. Um, So like, how would, how would one find a diagnostician that could be so perfectly, you'd you'd almost have to be an automaton, right? Right. Right. AI. Yes, exactly. It has to be AI. That could could filter all this stuff and spit it out because otherwise I don't know how one could be sitting on the fence in this mm-hmm. situation. It's, but it's so interesting because it really kind of just mirrors a lot of the discussion that's ongoing. And Katie and I have talked about this, but it's also just kind of part of the, the zeitgeist now is to what degree should psychology be political in one way or another? And that's you right. know, it's a bigger conversation, but it's it, it, this is definitely a part of that, and it's it's certainly a very interesting area great point about what should we be is activism a yeah. part of our job at all or not and certainly in academia right like it sort of feel like it's often like we're supposed to be these objective right. like out opinions and um and you know i don't know i feel like this younger generation is breaking that down in some ways and i don't mean that in a negative yeah. way it's like they're just saying i i'm going to be an authentic person and mm. that means i'm not going to separate my personal from my professional entirely and i think sometimes maybe we separate it especially even in psychotherapy i often believe that we there's almost this artificial separation so if a client asked you like oh well are you married and you know and, and like almost like the classic mm. like well, what is it you're, what is it you're wondering about right. well, why, right. can't we just, why can't we just be people and say that's a totally reasonable thing for you to want to know is whether mm-hmm. i'm married or whether i have children or where i grew up like why isn't that like a reasonable dialogue or why isn't it sometimes okay to hug a patient who just lost a spouse or, you know, like, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I sort of, as I get older, I think some of my thinking about sort of being able to be entirely objective or separate feelings from thought. I don't know. I, I feel more pessimistic that that should even be a goal. Yeah. That it's, that it's more, I guess it's more attainable for most of us to just say where our perspectives are when we're talking about things versus pretending that we're neutral about it. And I was going to ask you about the idea of some people have said psychologists shouldn't speak out about Trump because their patients shouldn't know their political opinions. Oh man, that's a great question. I, I mean, let me first say, I have not seen a, I have not seen a patient now in 16 years, I think. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, I'm not sure I think tremendously, uh, you know, from that perspective as much. Mm -hmm. Um, No, your points are well taken. What about a student, do you think? Yeah, yeah, you're in academia. That's, Mm -hmm. can we be tied back to the academia, that that hot topic? I mean, I have friends that are Trump supporters. I have family members that, you know, are Trump supporters. Um, I, I still, like, love those friends and family members, even if on this issue, I can feel a disconnect or have a difficult time wrapping my mind around that. I'd like to think with a student or a patient that I think I would argue for transparency to the extent that if they asked me about it and, and much like I might with a a patient with a, of, you know, uh, a different background or race or culture, have a dialogue about it. Like, uh, you know, and encourage them to let me know where my, you know, if there are times where my political opinions were intruding on their comfort um, or their safety in voicing their own opinions. Um, yeah. So I would hope that we could have an open dialogue. I don't think I would suggest like I'm going to start each, you know, say with a new patient saying, hey, this is how I vote. 
Right, <laughs> right, of course, because <laughs> it's not about the therapist, right? And, and exactly. bringing that in makes it about them. <laughs> but, but if they asked, I don't know that I would also run from it. Yeah, and I think authenticity matters so much in, in therapy. And I think we can be authentic and even have empathy for, you know, even if it takes more top-down effort to have empathy, say, for what might prompt, say, some of the fears that Trump supporters have about, you know, say, maybe, um, you know, white non-college educated men, you know, right, that's one of his base. And, and maybe right. some of the fears that drive being pushed out of society. And I would like to think I could, it could resonate enough with me that I could be therapeutic. And, and but if I wasn't, then I would think that would have to be a conversation that um, I would be willing to engage in. Yeah. And, and you're right that 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 happens with all kinds of situations, right? There are people because of their religious beliefs as therapists have a harder time with certain patients. And that's part of why we spend time in training, learning how to examine our biases and have these conversations, like you're saying, because even though I live in a pretty a very conservative place on average, politics don't actually come up very much at all in, in our sessions. And so right. I think that sometimes, or even when I when I was teaching classes, they they didn't really come up. I like you said, I had a few students who would talk to me after or have specific questions or opinions and want to get my input on it. But generally it wasn't a, it was a a minuscule part of the work. And so I do, I think that's a reason to feel more comfortable with this idea. Like you said, that people are authentic and, and speak about things that matter without it, meaning that they're compromising the level of education and care that they're providing for people. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can we talk a little bit? I'd be curious to your thoughts too. I mean, one of the things I see a lot and, you know, um, Alan Francis has said this and I've had people most recently say it too, is like, you know, are we stigmatizing people with mental illness when we say Trump may have some personality pathology or, or making people less likely to come in? And I I have to say, I really reject that notion. I I think we destigmatize mental illness by like some of the stuff on Twitter recently where like lots of psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, physicians are talking about that they've been in therapy, their diagnosis, their medications, started saying in my abnormal class that I take uh, an SSRI for worry. That's how I think we destigmatize. I think we have, by people like um, Kevin Love in in the NBA Mm -hmm. or DeMar DeRozan talking about anxiety, or depression like i think by letting people know that these people that they might look up to and presume sort of great mental health and seeing that that's not true and that that these people that they respect and who have achieved a great deal in their life in their lives oftentimes struggle with cope with you know work around these same problems i I, I don't I trust the public enough to know that because someone says the president is psychopathic, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm suggesting that someone with depression couldn't be the president. I, I, I think I, I don't know. I just I have more faith, you know, in the mm-hmm. public to, to understand, um, you know, that there are good people with mental illness and there are bad people with mental illness in the same way there are. There are nice people with cancer and there are not nice people with cancer. Mental illness doesn't mean you're a nice person necessarily. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean you're a not nice person either, right? Like, um, but I I don't know. I I find it like sort of um, in some ways almost pathologizing of people with Mm -hmm. mental health concerns to suggest they're not robust enough or cognizant enough to see the complexity uh, in these situations. Absolutely. The times that at least that I think are stigmatizing are when people basically attribute 
something racist or sexist or transphobic to a mental illness. Like that, I think, is a different thing than saying this person has narcissistic personality disorder right. trait. So I'm I'm with you that not allowing some trust that people can see some nuance in these situations. And I think like, I mean, just thinking just off the top of my head, right? I mean, I think George W. Bush, right, had struggled with alcohol to some degree in his 20s and 30s, and I think was sober. I don't remember anyone, lots of people had problems with W's, you know, presidencies, but I don't think there were many psychologists chalking it up to addiction or previous addiction or addictive personality. I certainly didn't see, see any mainstream uh, psychological voices saying that, right? So again, I think it suggests like, just because right now there are some people speaking out about this, that we have to think that every president now or vice president with the hint of psychopathology, people are going to use that to ta- try to um, sort of denigrate their, I, I just don't see that as likely. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't think that's the case. And I think, even, and if it was the case, I think like, I think the public would see through it, right? They would see that psychologist or psychiatrist or whomever as like, um, a hyperpartisan, right? Like, uh, whereas I think there are going to be some people I'm sure that would think I'm just a hyperpartisan and I, I can deal with that. But I, I can think in my heart of hearts that this is about a pattern of behavior, not um, sort of my political, specific political ideology. Have you had much pushback from people about your interviews or speaking out? Because I do think that's one of the reasons some people are reluctant to speak out too, other than like a ethical concerns. Maybe they just don't want any any backlash. Yeah. I mean, the, it's interesting. The, the, um, Alex Panetta, the reporter of the CBC piece said, and he talked about it a little bit, but when we talked on the phone, he said, I mean, I, this was kind of funny just speaking of narcissism, right? He's like, I usually, he was saying, I usually find Americans so willing to talk in American. <laughs> <academicians."> <laughs> and he was like, this is so different. He's like, I can't get anyone. That to is, that is the so yeah, some parallel process going on there. Too, right? but, uh, so I thought that was funny. Um, and I do, yeah, I do think it speaks to a, a mixture of fear of, excuse me, sanctions so, sort of ethically, but also like, you know, fear of Trump supporters doxing people or death threats or things like that. And you know, I'm a neurotic person. So it's easy for me to get in my head about that kind of stuff. And I guess uh, oh, I have just... Wait, now that I, and now that you think about it, uh-oh. Oh, I know. Never mind. Go ahead. Delete the, everything that Undo I've said, this please. Episode. This never right. occurred. But I guess I just feel like um, we have to live by and enact our values, even sometimes when it's scary. And so um, I guess that's that's where I come down on it. Um, don't know. In 2016, when I was saying some of this stuff on Twitter and things, I had somebody who is actually interesting, like seemed politically aligned with me, say something that made it sound... I, that I thought was sort of um, intimating like a threat to APA or something, which, you know, I then sort of explained like, I'm not even an APA member. <laughs> so like, but no, I haven't had a ton. I think part of that's probably like who sees me, you know, who's going to listen to this. It's going to be, uh, most, I assume, mm-hmm. mostly other psychology mm-hmm. students and people just interested in this field, you know, like even on Twitter again, like I think my network isn't that large. So it's mostly like-minded people. And then, you know, the people that disagree probably just don't say anything rather than try to like publish my home address, you know, or like, (laughs) that's good. um, We don't want that to happen. It's not something I do. um, Like I said, I wish I was more fearlessly dominant, right? Like I wish fearlessness Mm -hmm. was more part of my personality. Um, It's more, 
I am a contrarian in some ways. So I, I'm, I'm willing to push the envelope in that way. And also, I just do think these are critically important issues and like people should speak out about them. I, I wish there were more voices so it would be diluted. But, you know, that part, I guess it is what it is. You know, I, under, I do understand people's fears about it for sure. I think actually this, we may have alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the last kind of point that I that I wanted to talk about in, is how much will it actually really matter? Because I just keep thinking about confirmation biases ultimately, and totally, and in what we know about social psychology and people is that ultimately you can give people evidence of one thing, or and what happens is that you're just going to seek information that is going to confirm confirm whatever you already believe, and we'll, we're unfortunately seeing it play tragically currently with COVID, right? So. If I was to detach myself as much as I can from the situation, I'm just seeing camps that and they're just saying this is the way we should do it and this is the way we should do it and just holding dear to that. So I just think we could, you know, make all these warnings and say all of that. But I think, especially if I, as I think about the Trump phenomenon and his election, it seems that a lot of the people who voted for him Cho- no, it's precisely because of those qualities. Right. His willingness to just pop off and, uh, you know, and embellish. Uh, stories yeah. and things to a degree that he's an entertainer that's what made him uh, you know for the people who liked his, his show like he's a consummate entertainer and then people just feel like okay now you're you're going to pursue the policies that somebody would in an entertaining fashion and you're willing to do it in a way that other people don't and right. that's what i like and those you know those liberal elites are going to call you names and everything but that just that just proves that you're in the right path and i'm right. like yeah no that's a that's it. I mean, your point is super well taken. I, you know, I think like, will this change anything? Uh, camps are so, um, you know, strongly entrenched. formed, entrenched. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't think of the word. God, <laughs> um, I'm really, you know, starting to feel that like the mid '40s, uh, oh yeah, you know, word searching phenomenon more. But um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I'm not convinced at all that this does anything. I don't know. I guess the 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 slightly optimistic part wonders if you know you can their vote coming up and and who might find it helpful and maybe it won't be helpful at all this time but maybe the next time there's someone running for a really powerful position that shows some of these signs maybe some of this can help in the future saying look like some people cautioned against this last time and and i wish i had spoken out more forcefully then i one did not think trump was going to win to b i was more worried about consequences and so just was like sort of slower to be as explicit about it. It's still you know, not like it's going to affect, you know, like, you know, I have a thousand followers on Twitter. Not like I was going to swing an election, but speaking <laughs> well, of depends on where, Josh, you know, <laughs> you're, in, you're in Georgia, that's difficult. But if you move to Ohio at the right time, this, this right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it, in a more pes- pessimistic moment, Leo, you may have me convinced that none of it matters. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it's, it's risks for no gain. And so, I go back and forth. Yeah, yeah. No, your point's well, very very well taken uh, in that way. You know, I've often wished like APA would like find mm. really um, like uh, this is awful, really attractive, well-spoken people. <laughs> like true, like find, but those avatars matter. <laughs> yeah, find an expert in each of say uh, every major domain uh-huh. who is just like very articulate knows the literature but really is skilled at like uh it's like science writing like you know ed yang and these people who are able to know the science and put it into the mainstream like um layperson's language so brilliantly i kind of wish apa had that kind of 
person who could then convey this stuff in a broader way. And right then they could be on CNN or NBC or Fox or whatever. They could be, have these conversations, right? Like, mm. and have a much broader, like, yeah, my 1300 followers, it, even in, even in Ohio or Minnesota or Wisconsin, like <laughs> just that's not, not going to swing things, but I, playing my own devil's advocate, I agree that like, um, you know, the sides are so happy, so entrenched that and, and willing to dismiss expertise, right? even like mask wearing, right? Like yeah. um, that that an expert saying something that you find off putting probably doesn't move the needle much. Right. Uh, but in an election that's swung by not a lot of votes, right? Maybe, maybe the needle difference. doesn't have to swing a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe just getting some of the people who are still considering it, maybe that's enough sometimes. I don't know. I was going to say, I'll be my own, my, my own uh, devil's advocate as well. And I'll say, you know, there are times, you're right, maybe you don't have a lot of followers, but in, in this time and age, it, there's a double-edged sword to tweeting. And then it's just amazing how very quickly something can go viral, either for right. good or bad. And just your message may be like, oh, I'm just nobody. And it just amplifies in a way that resonates. And totally. You can think, you know, in a good way, I would say, like, the Black Lives Matter movement started, you know, it started as a signal in the environment that was really, and they just amplified, amplified until you just hit a tipping point, and then it spread, like, while right. they're in the right time and place. And so that could be the case as well, is that sometimes, you know, this idea is in, out now, and it's out in the open from in the papers were published a while ago, and then it just it starts, maybe, it hits critical mass. So there right. you go, Josh, you, you might have either <laughs> a... a, a Either adoring crowds at your door or with pitchforks. We don't oh, know. Oh, great. Well, you know, and also it just speaks to like, again, like, you know, activism and, and our probably our general discomfort with that. And also mm. the power in groups that like if groups had spoken up more strongly about, hey, this is an egregious case of personality problems. Mm -hmm. Like even if you stayed away from diagnosis and we mm -hmm. were really concerned about the long-term impact that maybe that and you know sort of that's what you know some of the duty to warn people where they were bringing together i don't know 10 20 more in psychiatry than psychology i think people i mean not that that moved farther but I, yeah I, I guess um the power of groups might have been more helpful too and it gets a little harder to dismiss a group of experts than a singular mm -hmm. one although Again, I, I, I suspect that if you want to denigrate a message, you're motivated to do that. You find a way to do that. I, it's funny. One of my old grad students um, was telling me that she had shared the CBC's story on her Facebook page and that someone in her family had said, well, everyone knows that people that go into psychology do so because of their <laughs> oh, problems. <laughs> you know? And so I think, you know, like, and there goes that. <laughs> right. If you need to dismiss that, if you need to dismiss expertise based on that, there are so many different ways to do that, that, you know, we can't counter really, or not, you know, not when people are sort of motivated reasoning is so intense. On the other hand, if if we're looking, always looking at the other side, sometimes speaking out about these things can, um, but it can validate and maybe mobilize people who are on the same page but didn't feel as urgent about, I don't know, working to get out the vote more and whatever and things like that. And so even if it's not changing a lot of minds, maybe it is serving to help those who are concerned become more concerned or see more of the seriousness. Of right. It. Maybe. Yeah. Nice, nice cognitive reframe. I am in the therapy <laughs> uh, domain now. So yes, totally. <laughs> yes, your skills, your skills are far more honed than my own for sure. <laughs> we'll not argue that. I also, it's also um, for perhaps my own reasons of, of trying to be hopeful and things like that. And I do appreciate 
you talking in your areas of expertise and, and kind of overriding what I think clinical psychologists were trained to be pretty conservative about speaking out about these things. And I agree with you that my thinking has changed on that over time. And so thank you so much yeah, for um, all that you've done in the papers that you've written and for coming on today. Is there anything else we we should talk about? Uh, we've already taken up a, a good amount of your time. Oh, no. I mean, I thought you, this was really fun. It's it's an interesting, I do find it sort of simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Much of this, right? Yeah. From, like, from a research perspective, right? You know, you could generate so many research ideas in some ways, and it's just so fascinating um, if it didn't have such unbelievably dire, you know, consequences for so many people, um, and, and especially the most vulnerable sort of, of among us. Like, I'll do fine coming out of this, but many more vulnerable people will not. And so that's what makes it so serious to me. So, but thank you for the kind words. I, uh, I, you know, I don't know that I believe them entirely, but I appreciate you saying them and I appreciate y'all having me on. And it, it was a you know, really it was fun awesome. to chat with y'all about a topic. I'm sure we all could do for three or four hours. Yeah, yeah honestly, totally. You know, I keep saying this is the one thing I was like, you know, will this is 2020 is going to be for the history books for multiple reasons. The whole, you know, the whole precedence is, they're not going to be a footnote in any way, shape, or form, but uh, but yeah, this particularly this year. So it's been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks, y'all. Nice chatting with you. Mm-hmm.